0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. Uh, on this episode, I'm talking to Dylan Mulvan about proxies, the cultural work of standing in. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, this, this is a fascinating book and um, it, it's the kind of book that struck me as as having um, both a, a really you know serious kind of theoretical Contribution, but also it—it's a fascinating set of tales, really, of, of kind of stories about not just the contemporary world um, and, and some historical analysis, but but actually with some some implications for for thinking about how the world is going to be in the future. And I suppose the place to start really is is with this example that the book opens with of a proxy, um, which is also a, a kind of you know, bizarre curiosity as well as quite a sort of terrifying and, and quite worrying um, institution, installation called Yodaville. Um, and as a way of kind of like almost unraveling everything that's in the book, I wonder if you could tell me a bit about Yodaville and, and, and sort of how it introduces the ideas that the book is playing with.
0: Sure, I'd love to. Um, so Yodaville is a city, we could call it, in the southwest of the desert of Arizona. It's about 30 miles or 35 miles from Yuma, if you're trying to locate it um, in Arizona. It's about six miles from the U.S.-Mexico border, and it exists alongside a number of um, uh, First Nations reservations um, and in the traditional occupied territory of the Cocopa and the Kuechan. Um It is owned and operated by the U.S. military. Uh, Yodaville, um, it looks like a small town or city with eight large radiating boulevards, um, but it's actually built out of shipping containers. And so if you look at it on Google Maps, it looks like um, the Arizona desert uh, has a kind of asterisk in the middle of it, um, and that's Yodaville. Yodaville. So Yodaville was built uh, in the mid-1990s, specifically as a response to what the U.S. military considered a disaster. Um, in the UN's intervention in the Somali Civil War. Um, So if you've seen the film Black Hawk Down or read the book by Mark Bowden, right, that's a kind of signal failure of the late 20th century U.S. military's expansion into Africa in its so-called peacekeeping efforts. Um, And the kinds of failures of... uh, uh, And the Battle of Mogadishu um, led the US military to look inwards at its training um, and and how it kind of created simulations for training uh, military personnel. And one of the things that they saw, and you can see this in the commission reports from the RAND Corporation, for instance, one of the things that they saw was that their training simulations for urban combat were overly reliant on representations of Northwestern Europe, right? Sort of second world war, um, imaginations of what an urban area would look like. And so they built this new area called Yodaville along with some other encampments that were meant to reflect in the really grim terminology, um, of that Rand corporation report, uh, the, quote, chaotic environments found in densely populated areas of the developing world, right? So you can tell the kinds of flexible imaginaries that Yodaville was meant to stand in for. And so I talk about Yodaville as a stand-in for any number of possible places, um, in the US military's uh, uh, imagining of its expanding empire, but also a definite place, right? It is shipping containers in the Southwest of Arizona's desert, right? It is a shared um, training course, right? It's an almost like a textbook for pilots and military personnel. Um, it is a common resource, a shared representation. And sure enough, when the US military um, you know, when they did go to war in in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, Yodaville quickly transformed, right? It was no longer just anywhere in the developing world, any possible chaotic environment. The ways that it was similar to Iraq, say, were highlighted. And so you have military personnel saying, they got heat, we got heat. It is the ideal place to train. And I use this framework to talk about proxies, right? The people, the places like Arizona, the things that can come to stand in for other places as we train and standardize and produce knowledge of the world. So that's the role of Yodaville um, in the story of proxies.
1: Yeah, it, it's a great overview of both, you know, what a proxy is. And then this, as the book's title, has this idea of, of things standing in for, standing in place of. Um, the book has got three case studies, and obviously we'll talk about the three case studies in turn, but I'm I'm sort of interested before that kind of what got you interested in writing about proxies and, and writing about um, both objects, places, individuals, digital images um, that, that do this kind of work of, of standing in, um, and, and how you came to kind of pick the three case studies that the book thinks through.
0: Yeah, absolutely. This uh, this project began. Um... I guess about 12 years ago with a research question that I, I got while I was in my PhD of trying to figure out when something happened in visual media that my supervisor at the time had identified in audio media. And I was sort of the image guy. Um, and so I, I located a moment uh, in what we call perceptual techniques. Now I'll pause for a second. Perceptual techniques refers to Um when you design a technology to take into consideration how you imagine human perception works, right? So how much information do you need in an MP3 file for the music to sound good enough, right? Well, using a kind of understanding of the human ear, you can make decisions about how much information to include so that music sounds okay. I was trying to find a similar answer to the question about TV, right? When in television... Um, did, Did assumptions about human color vision get incorporated into the infrastructure? And this led me to the National Television System Committee of 1953 in the United States, which standardized color television for the first time. And in doing so, made all of these decisions about how humans see, how much green or blue or red you need in the signal for the image to make sense. The answer is, in fact, very little blue. Um, and using um, that signal to compress the image, uh, you, they were able to fit both black and white and color television on one signal. And this is kind of a really meaningful moment in the history of television, one of the things that let it kind of build and spread. Well, looking at those NTSC minutes um, I found 27 color test images that Kodak Eastman had produced for NTSC in trying to determine um, how to build the color television standard and these images are incredible Um, you can find them in in work that I've done with Jonathan Stern but they show this like very pastoral kind of idyllic life lots of images of people canoeing and sailing there's an image of a woman leaning in a pile of hay holding a kitten that's just called Girl with Kitten. There are people playing table tennis, people drawing with crayons. There are curiously almost no representations of electricity um, in in any of these images. Um, And they were made specifically to imagine how color television would look, what it would portray, um, and what its kind of physical and cultural capacities should be. It maybe goes without saying, but I'll say it, nonetheless, the images only show people with pale skin um, and uh, um, they look almost nothing like the color television that would dominate American uh, airwaves for the next 60 years. Um, and I was fascinated by these images, like absolutely kind of taken by them in the way that they tried to wed both a kind of scientific goal, how to compress television in a way that incorporated knowledge of the eye and this cultural goal. How do we envision television will look, you know, what, who will it portray? What will they be doing? There's also the paradox that these were still images that went on to standardize or were used to test and standardize the most pervasive image, uh, moving image standard of the 20th century. From that, um, the rest is, in some sense history um, i started collecting every uh, test image i could find that had been used to standardize the technology and at one point i thought the project would be exclusively about test images right there's these amazing images that were used to standardize um, the fax standard right for sending faxes there's uh, incredible images used for jpeg um, for energy efficiency in LCD televisions. Or they're just, um, there's, I have this corpus of different things I thought I would study. But very quickly, I became, I knew that the story of images in standardization was one story that could be told, but that there was a larger cultural story about how we choose representations of the world. Um, for building institutions, right, and so I started to collect things like the standardized patients um, very early on in this project, and that's the the focus of the fifth chapter of the book, and that that's the and that's the use of medical actors um, in training and evaluating physicians. Um, I started to look at other kind of test objects, what sometimes gets called in the history of science working objects. Um, things like the use of chess um, in the standardization of AI, which which many people have written about, including Nathan Ensmenger. And I started to build this kind of catalog of things that I thought I might write about. Finally, it was these case studies that stood out because they, for me, could tell the story from um, the metric system—you know, arguably the most fundamental international standard um, that we have—to um, human performance um, in the case of test image models um, and finally uh, performers um, at the very basis of medical education it and the story as such concentrates then on human bodies human performances and sort of relational um, uh, dynamics within the standardization of knowledge
1: i was going to say we we can take the three in turn but but actually because you've been talking about um, I guess you know the sort of history of television and, and that sort of comment about yourself as as the image guy. I, I wonder if we could um, start with the middle of the book and 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 the um, is it the Lena or the or the Lena? I'm not sure of the pronunciation. But the Lena image, um, which combines a story about as you've said, you know, standardisation, history of the internet, history of television um of like you know pornography kind of bad behavior in uh university campus and, and university labs um you, you know the, the sort of uh, all dominant whiteness that you'd mentioned actually in terms of, of the history of what actually television broadcasts were like um, what's the story of of the leaner image and, and then where does it fit into this kind of broader tale about proxies and the work of standing in
0: yeah absolutely so the Pronunciations do differ. Um, and uh, I mean, I think speaks to the kind of insider, but also um, mixed bag of awareness about the image. <laughs> um, so you, uh, it, it is variously called the Lena image or the Lena image. Um, and if you haven't looked it up, you can you can just search it right now. L-E-N-A um, is the most common spelling. Um, and it, it shows a woman looking over her shoulder She's wearing a hat. The hat has a large kind of feather thing tumbling off of it. Um, You can tell that she's reflected in an oval mirror, um, and she's in sharp focus, but the background is out of focus. It has, this, it has a very odd kind of aesthetic. It's, it's kind of soft focus. Maybe there's some Vaseline on the lens. Um, you might even think it's oddly cropped since um, her shoulder is cut off in a very awkward way. Um, there's a reason for this awkwardness. The Lena image was either torn or folded or cut, um, from the centerfold image of the November 1972 issue of Playboy magazine um, by engineers at the Signal and Image Processing Institute, or SIPI, um, at the University of Southern California. The image was created to test the possibility of sending and um, analyzing images over a network, Um, This is research happening on ARPANET, which is the predecessor to the Internet. Um, This is research also happening um, near the peak of the Vietnam War um, in in research funded by the U.S. military again. Um, And uh, this is research that's fundamental to how we came to understand and build models for understanding digital images. The image um, first appears in public published research from SIPI uh, in in about 1975. It was probably digitized in 1973, so says everyone who was who was there, um, which creates this interesting gap. Right, there are different stories about how that image ended up on Arpanet. Um, some people like to say they were looking for a good image and that Playboy was famous for its high quality images, that Hugh Hefner would only allow the use of the highest quality paper stock. and the image was glossy some people will confess to kind of desiring the image or wanting a kind of novel image since images at the time are often recycled or there are a lot of pictures of the moon when you look at their research from this period because they're also being funded by the jet propulsion laboratory and they're trying to figure out how to send pictures back from the moon in a more efficient way um So whatever you believe, there is another story that somebody was sent out to buy the magazine. That story doesn't make any sense because they all agree that it was digitized about nine or 10 months after the magazine was released. Um, Between the 1970s and the 1990s, SIPI actually started producing image databases. So people would come to USC and if they were interested in image engineering, they'd often be handed um, a tape drive Right, not a not a cassette tape, but um, similar technology, and they could take that back to their home laboratory, and that that tape drive would have test images on it, right? And we're talking about the very, very, very earliest days of digital image processing, right? What um what we now consider, you know, a part of our daily lives, right? This is people trying to figure out how can we send images over a network, and so those test images really are fundamental to the kinds of knowledge and knowledge claims that were being produced at the time. How could you compare what you were doing with a digital image if you weren't performing it on the same set of images, right? So you might, you might test your um, algorithm on a, on a database of images, but at a certain point, you wanted to demonstrate your results on something other people would recognize. Over the next 15 or 16 years, that thing that people would recognize became the Lena image, right? So when digital image processing gets its first flagship journal in the early 1990s, it splinters off from optical engineering, right? So people doing kind of analog or x-ray imaging or other forms of imaging. Um, and in that first volume of the transactions of image processing, there are hundreds and hundreds of reproductions of the Lena image, which just shows how the image had kind of ascended as a um, shared test ground. So I trace this image um, and its ascent over those 20 years, right? How it lines up with the larger history of. Uh, uh, image technologies um, work done by Lorna Roth and Genevieve view on images called Shirley cards or in use case, the ch- so-called China girl images um, which are used um, in, in film processing um, work by Richard Dyer, right. On, on the ways that film technologies have been built on a kind of prototypical whiteness, but also on a kind of feminized um, uh, and sexualized um uh, objectification where women stand in um, as, as the object to be analyzed um, and around which standards can be honed. Is
1: that the, the critiques? <laughs> so, so I was going to say the critiques are really important here because one, you know, way of reading the story is uh, almost the kind of like, you know, here is something that is highly problematic and, and tells us something about why we have the sort of, you know, sexist, racist infrastructure that we have around us. But also, sort of, slightly later on in the story, you, you're keen to highlight actually there's been lots of resistance to this and lots of critique. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't just a kind of a. Um, a sort of unresisted or uncritiqued um, presentation, there was a lot of pushback over this.
0: That's exactly right. One one of the points of the book is to, um, and by using such an ordinary word like proxy um, instead of a kind of specialized term, is to kind of expand um, and highlight, you know, how these objects and places and people kind of float between being proxies for different things. Right. And so in the history of image processing, engineers will often talk about how the Lena image is just, it's a great face, right? It's a great proxy for human faces. Um, it's got flat, but not, um, uh, untextured surfaces—it's got a reflection, right? You can you can use it to do edge detection, right? Detecting shapes, which is kind of basic to to many AI techniques from that period. Um, you can do facial recognition on it, right? Um, so it's a great proxy for human faces. It's a kind of no nonsense explanation for how it ended up uh, um, the artifact that it is, but what i was trying to show as well is that it be- it became a proxy for all sorts of other fights as well right so at a certain point playboy becomes aware that the image is being used in this way and they send this cease and desist um uh, and they you know playboy was extremely good at enforcing its copyright and eventually this be- this is renegotiated and engineers are given a kind of exception to Um, Playboy's copyright to continue using the image on the basis that it was so crucial to the scientific work they were doing that they would basically have to um, unwire their way of understanding images and sharing results with each other that it really was a lingua franca for them. At another point, the image is is challenged in the mid-1990s at the heat of North American campus politics, Right, the kind of often gets called the political correctness wars, but is really a moment of kind of feminist rebuttal against longstanding misogyny within STEM education, the image gets held up as an emblem of uh, misogyny within computer science more broadly, right? So it becomes a proxy for a larger fight about gendering and sexuality, um, the pervasiveness of abuse um, and the pervasiveness of pornography within Um, engineering labs and then in the last uh, five or six years um, so I I started work on this image 12 years ago in the last um, five or six years the image is again kind of being held up as an emblem of everything that's wrong with computer science and more broadly with things like data sets and their biases the problems of representation that are hardwired in computer infrastructure and There is a recent short documentary um, about the Lena image that is ostensibly, um, uh, um, oh, sorry, that is funded by the Code Like a Girl campaign, which is an attempt to um, increase the number of women in STEM education, right? So it becomes again a proxy for a fight about gender and employment. Um, And so Yes, it's there at all of these key moments over the last 50 years of computer science where it, has, it can serve the role of, um, of a proxy for any number of uh, different tasks, but also political discursive um, debates about the, um, the use of uh, uh, images within computer science and image processing.
1: I mentioned that's the kind of the centre of the book and, and probably highlights all of the themes that run throughout the book, both um, kind of looking back earlier in the book in terms of discussions about standardisation and kind of practices of, of making things standard. And then later on in the book, where you're talking about, again, things like race, racism, different sort of cultural practices and and the other two examples um of how the kind of the metric system works uh, which is in, incredibly interesting and then as, as you'd mentioned how um medical education me- medical training works um draw on these themes but i guess um maybe a kind of uh, slightly different in in terms of being less to do with um, things like the digital and, and things like media, and I, I wonder actually um, maybe you could give the two sort of contrast really why you were writing about um, this thing that's like literally an object which is like a kilogram. <laughs> Um, and, and so it's it's fascinating to even ask you about that actually because the idea of there being an actual kilogram, which is like the kilogram, um, and indeed there's not actually one of them, and they have to clean it and stuff, which is fascinating. How, how does that kind of contrast with, um, I suppose, the more sort of digital, um, more internet-based uh, example of the image?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm more than happy to talk about that. Um, so the. The second chapter of the book is about the international prototype kilogram. It's only loosely about that. And the IPK, if I can call it that, or grand K, um, if you want to get really, (laughs) really fancy about it, Um, the IPK was, until a couple of years ago, the definition of mass. So if you looked at the actual metric system, you would find um, that it said uh, mass is equivalent to the mass of the IPK, which is a piece of platinum iridium held under three glass bell jars in a vault in the suburbs of Paris and Sevres, um, locked behind three sets of keys distributed to three different people. It is one of the most secure objects I know of. It's like a religious relic, but at another level. Um, it is, or was, for most of the history of the metric system, the proxy for the idea of mass. It um, it, it is a physical artifact that represents um, mass, and it has a bunch of um, uh, uh, witness kilograms, so it has some siblings that get called its témouin, um, but it also has a system of traceability that meant that every national laboratory um, had a kilogram that could be traced back to that kilogram, right? This kind of genealogy of kilograms. Um, But there was a problem. There was always a fundamental problem with the IPK, which is it is a piece of metal and metal uh, is porous uh, and leaky and it picks up contamination from its surroundings and they could never be totally certain how it had changed and so what we get over the course of the 20th century was this desire like absolute (laughs) desire to try to return the kilogram as close to its natural state its original state as possible and you get these really beautiful protocols for washing and cleaning the kilogram by hand with an ether ethanol solution and chamois leather to give it a handsome but not specular appearance, a phrase that I will remember forever. Um, and eventually by the, by the late 20th century, the metric system is actually rewritten. Um, so right up until the definition the redefinition of the IPK a few years ago, um, the definition of mass actually read mass is equivalent to the mass of the International prototype kilogram comma after cleaning and washing. And this blew my mind when I was collecting examples of proxies and looking for the kinds of protocols and history and maintenance and repair that was required to maintain them. I mean, here was, here was the definition of mass um, with manual labor built into uh, every measurement we make. Right? This idea that things need to be cleaned, they need to be kept up, they need to be washed by hand, and that there was an aesthetic dimension to it, Right, that handsome but not specular appearance that is in the eye of the beholder. There is, um, as I've put it elsewhere, muscle and sinew in the metric system. And this to me is a kind of inescapable uh, reality right? That there's something aesthetic, something bodily, something muscular to how we live with information and data, right? If we can talk about an aesthetic dimension of the IPK, there is something probably inescapably aesthetic to how we think about information and data. And so part of the book is by beginning with the metric system or beginning with Yodaville, going to the metric system and then going straight into networked images and coming out and then talking about standardized patients, right? People embodying standards. Um, There's an attempt to try to think alongside the network or the database, which I think are the two... um, forms or structures that overwhelm how we think about technology in the contemporary moment and trying to think alongside those structures um, about uh, information and data in other ways, right? How is it animated by hands and people and models and out of work actors, right? In, in ways that aren't determined by the network form or determined by database knowledge. Um, That's, that's the idea of the structure of the book, why I begin there and, and end elsewhere, but kind of dwell in the middle on the network.
1: It's probably worth actually ex- extending what you're saying about the connections between those uh, starting and, and closing chapters and, and the kind of the embodiedness of the standard patient program Um it's quite a nice link back to the strangely kind of, as you mentioned, you know, manual labor of cleaning the kilogram, um, which um, it it sounds like a kind of like a Simpsons episode, doesn't it? You know, Homer steals (laughs) the original kilogram from from France or something like that. But yeah, what's going on with the standardized patient program? And and particularly, actually, I suppose when you're thinking about the kilogram, you've got a variety of uh, kind of critical theoretical um interventions you make um but they're much i think starker when we're talking about the um inbuilt uh assumptions about who is a human and who is not in the standardized patient program
0: mm-hmm. sure I mean, it's been a long time since I watched The Simpsons, but I think it's entirely possible there really is a, an International Prototype Kilogram episode at this point. Um, oh, yeah, a terrible
1: late, late era one. Where <laughs> yeah, season 22. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's just Homer redefines mass. Um, yeah, so coincidentally, the standardized patient program also began at the University of Southern California about a decade before the Lena image was digitized there. Um, it was started by mostly by one guy, a, a young, um, med school professor named Howard Barrows, um, who had the idea that physicians needed better training, um, in what we more or less call bedside manner, right. In how they show empathy and understanding for their patients. At that time, there had been a kind of bedside mannered test, but, um, some sociological research had said, had shown that, um, you know, chances of passing the test or doing well in the test were about as good as chance, right? So there wasn't a good system f- for training people in, in demonstrating care for their patients. And so Barrows had the idea of bringing actors into the classroom and having those actors perform, in some sense, where the um, symptoms of illness, and disability. So the first person he hired um, was hired out of the art department at USC, and she was a life model, a professional model. Um, he brought her in and, and, and trained her in acting paralyzed, actually. Um, uh, we can talk later about why paralysis was important for that demonstration. Um, Barrows was mocked uh, quite a bit for this, um, practice. Uh, it, it became part of the education at, at USC. Um, it was tied to USC's proximity to Hollywood, right? It was treated as a kind of, um, shallow exercise, right? So AP news articles from the time, you know, highlight how quote unquote lucky these med school, um, Physicians or trainee physicians are to be working with models, right? Again, sexualizing the labor of the people involved. Um, but over the next 30 years, Barrows moved to Canada for a while and the program took off there. Um, the standardized patient program actually became a necessary part of medical education. And now, Virtually anyone who wants to be a physician um, has to go through something that's called an objective, uh, structured clinical examination, or an OSCE, um, and prove that they can both diagnose an actor portraying the typical symptoms of illness or disability, and um, demonstrate care, uh, understanding, and things like proper hygiene in their acting in their interactions with those patients. For me, um, the reason for ending the case studies with the standardized patients are, well, one, I think it's a fascinating story, right? I think it's it involves all sorts of things that we care about in media studies or in science and technology studies, right? Human performance as a relational instrument, right? The codification of the body. Um, it involves the kind of masquerade of disability um, in ways that are, I think, Uh, deeply problematic, right? It shows um, how key performance, um, embodied labor, um, and theatricality are to uh, medical standards um, and to the building of a a crucial institution. And um, it also shows that if in some ways, um, standards really took off. International standardization really took off in the 19th century and the metric system is a kind of model of international standardization. Some people say the first metric conference was the first international scientific conference. We end with what I think is the outer limit of the possibility of standardization, which is can you train people to act ill or disabled in a controllable enough manner that you're willing to base medical accreditation on their performance and other people's interactions with them, right? What an idea Right to go from, can we agree on the size of a kilogram or a meter stick, right? Can we agree on these basic measurement units to, can we train people to inhabit an imagined idea of di- of disability in a predictable fashion. Um, and, of course, um, it, it has happened, right? But I'm most fascinated by the work that it takes to actually maintain that system, right? So how how do you make one person's body disappear so that you can encode another person's lifetime on top of it, right? So there's these scripts that people learn um, to inhabit particular bodies or particular performances at the same time that they also have to make their own body disappear, right? So you're told to drink water and have a snack so your stomach doesn't growl in the middle of an OSCE exam because you wouldn't want your actual body to, to bust through there's a whole schedule of fees that are related to how intimate of an examination you're willing to have. Right. So you being an SB is not a particularly well-paid position. You can expect 15 to $20 if you're lucky. Um, it's intermittent work. It's often meant for people trying to kind of piece together a living. Um, but you can make more money if you're, if you're willing um, to provide expertise about the interior of your body. Um, And so it, to me, covers uh, everything I would want to talk about in in the process of proxification, right? How do you transform um, a a living person into a stand-in so that you can standardize knowledge, right? And what what kinds of suspension of disbelief um, and... uh, Um, shared common practices what kinds of performance are required for that process to be possible
1: the three examples give a kind of framework that i can think of all all different kinds of uh, future research projects future research case studies um but one of the things about writing a book there's an element of kind of closure that that you get um and I'm sort of keen to know what do you do next, both in terms of kind of you know proxies and standing in as 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 a research agenda, or in terms of just thinking about um, you know something completely different and, and an entirely different project.
0: Sure, um, it's a great question. I think, you know, I, I as um, people tell you all the time. I'm sure Uh, the hard part about publishing a book is that (laughs) the moment that people want to talk about it is the moment that you're finally done with it. Um, But I've had a lot of really interesting conversations about the idea of proxies and proxy labor, proxification over the last um, nine or 10 months, I guess. Um, And I have continued to collect Proxies. So if it started with some images from the NTSC standard um, and build, built to this kind of catalog of different um, artifacts and people and places, uh, I'm still collecting those things. And I think one of the limits of the book is I've really focused on standardized proxies, things that have lasted a long time. Um, that have taken on importance within institutions as shared representations, things that left a paper trail as well that you could write chapters about, um, that you could cite things about, in some cases, um, cite other scholars about. Uh, so the things that I'm looking at now are, are things that are a little bit more ephemeral, um, things that don't vanish from view too easily, Um, So charismatic proxies or failed proxies. Um, (laughs) I I was fascinated in the autumn for those of us who live in the UK during the so-called supply crisis, which is um, when it was harder to find groceries on the shelves. There's this moment in Tesco and Sainsbury's and boots where there are suddenly these cardboard cutouts of fruits and vegetables that were missing. I think it was so that if somebody took a picture of the empty shelves, it would sort of look like there was still asparagus on the shelf or something. Um, in boots, there were cardboard pyramids, um, of fake sandwiches where the meal deal would normally be. Um, I don't know that I can write a chapter about the boots pyramids, but I do. Uh, it did highlight for me, you know, how important these kinds of stand-ins are for paper overing, the or papering over, <laughs> papering over um, gaps in a crumbling infrastructure. I do think, and I've said at my moments of being the most hyperbolic that we live in the moment of the proxy, right? Which isn't to say there are more proxies um, than ever before, but that these kinds of relationships of delegation um, are front and center in the things that we care about. This is most obvious in the ways people talk about data sets and the politics of data, data doubles, and all of those things, which I think we could think about in terms of proxification, but also in kind of delegation to... The gig economy, right? Or to so to um, gig workers as surrogate shoppers, or to the kind of Airbnb economy and the stand-in apartment, right? Or the shared workplace, or even the stand-in dog walker that you can hire here in London. Um, these things existed before, but not at the scale that they exist now. Um, I'm fascinated by the synthesis of. Um, uh, uh, actor performance, so the use of um, computer technology to reanimate deceased actors. This is obvious in, in some recent Star Wars films, um, like the case of Carrie Fisher, or in the Fast and the Furious franchise, and the use of um, Paul Walker's Brothers to stand in for him in that franchise and then overlay his face on their bodies. I mean, this is a really, to me, gut-wrenching example. I would love to write about, again, I don't know, that's a different book. But these are all things that that don't fit the model of the standardized proxy, um, but things that have stuck out to me uh, in the in the couple of years it's been since I submitted the final version of this manuscript. I'm very keen
1: on a Fast and Furious book, Proxy's book. Mm-hmm. I think that could be uh,
0: <laughs> that could be the million seller. <laughs> Proxy and proxyist? <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. Very much so.